Hello, I'm Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Robert Kagan. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a columnist for the Washington Post, and an author of previous books entitled The Return of History and the End of Dreams, Dangerous Nation, Of Paradise and Power, and A Twilight Struggle. The book we're discussing today is his latest, The Jungle Grows Back, America and Our Imperiled World. So, Mr. Kagan, or Robert, I'll address you as Robert, uh, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, this is really an extended essay. There are not really chapter breaks in this. This is a book you could probably read in a uh, one to two sittings, I think. It's an uh, essay on American foreign policy where you review history and uh, obviously are trying to draw lessons from that history. And so what's your, what's your motivation in writing this right now in 2018? Well, part of it is just observation, just trying to understand the world as it's evolving uh, or the world as it's always been, as the case may be. Uh, but I think I'm also concerned that um, Americans have forgotten uh, why the United States took on this sort of enormous task of maintaining some kind of uh, decent liberal world order after World War II and that they need to think again about that history at a time when I think most Americans think uh, we're, you know, that it's too costly to engage in this activity and that, uh, you know, Trump is, uh, Donald Trump is right in saying we should be looking out solely for our own interests and not worrying about global responsibilities. Now, your book's really not about public opinion per se, but do you think Americans have always been aware of what the purposes of America's role have been since World War II? No. I mean, I think in some respects there was, uh, you know, what made it easier for most Americans to support this uh, large role was fear of communism. And so I think that there was a certain conflation of the idea of supporting a liberal world order and fighting communism. Now, you know, I, I do think Americans understood that it was important for the United States to be involved in Europe and in Asia um, and of course, you know, the Cold War was a major motivation for that. So I do think that they, if you said, why do we have a large Navy or why do we have uh, an alliance commitment with other countries, including other rich countries like Germany and Japan, I think Americans would have had an answer to that question. It might have been uh, an overly simple answer or it might have been a slightly off answer, but there was an answer. Whereas today, I think Americans do not have an answer to that question, and therefore, that's why it's possible for a president to start talking about, um, you know, not having those kinds of commitments, and Americans are not troubled by the prospect. I don't think an American president could have said the kind of things uh, that President Trump routinely says these days 40 years ago without raising a big stir. Today, I think most Americans just either nod or ignore it. So looking back on uh, the starting point for your argument, and this really is an argument. It's not just a historical review. Um, where, what's the starting point for you that makes the most impact for the reader? Well, I think the starting point has to be the first half of the 20th century uh, because the people who created the, uh, this sort of American role in the world after, you know, well, really during World War II and then after 1945, uh, their view of the world was shaped by the two world wars um, and a lot of the other things that happened uh, in the first 
40 years of the 20th century, including, you know, the Holocaust and the massive famines uh, under Stalin's rule uh, and other horrors and sort of also the collapse of democracy in Europe. So that experience shaped uh, their policymaking. And I think unless we understand that, we don't understand what they created and why they created it. So my starting point is really uh, 1900, I suppose. Uh, but in any case, uh, and then jumping ahead uh, to the decisions to sort of lay the groundwork for this international system uh, uh, during and just after World War II. So you're concerned with the American role, definitely. And I agree with you that is obviously is your starting point in 1900 and concerned with the American role in the West, but in the larger globe. But it seems to me your starting point might even be much earlier than that. Um, you could pick several different points, but maybe it's um, the end of the Thirty Years' War um, and uh, the principles of non-interference in other nation states versus what comes along in the late 18th century, which is a concern for whether the world can be and is capable of being made into uh, Republican uh, republics or democracies. So what do you think about that suggestion that maybe the starting point is really uh, even broader than the U.S. Uh, entry into world power? Well, I think that's fair enough, although I've never really uh – accepted the argument that after the peace of Westphalia, nations weren't intervening in each other's affairs. I think that might have been an interesting uh, legal concept or theoretical concept, but nations have never stopped interfering in each other's affairs. Uh, So I don't draw that as a particular dividing line. I think political scientists and international relations theorists have made far too much of the so-called Westphalian system. Um, But I do think that questions about uh, you know, liberalism, which is a fairly new phenomenon, have certainly been at work uh, in shaping history. And uh, definitely the, the birth of uh, American uh, Republic, as well as then the French Revolution, uh, set off a struggle between uh, a liberal worldview and an authoritarian worldview or an, or a traditional worldview, actually, uh, that we're still fighting to this day. And, and certainly, and, and I suppose you can go back even to the Enlightenment and say, uh, or, or and maybe so back to the 17th century, and say that that was sort of the beginning of a struggle that we're still having. But you, you embrace that struggle, in other words. In other words, you support that liberal worldview and that propagation of liberalism in the classic sense, classical sense, right? Oh, sure. I mean, that's what I think is the correct, that is that that is the moral endpoint from my point of view. But I think what I'm trying to argue in the book is that is not a necessary endpoint. It isn't where human nature and humanity are necessarily going, but I'm certainly on that side of the struggle. Yeah. Okay. And so since you mentioned human nature, how would you classify or categorize uh, your views? Who would you associate yourself with? Maybe is it Thomas Hobbes or John Locke? <laughs> you know, the problem is, as, as you know better than I do, that uh, you don't want to associate yourself with those guys too closely because they said and did a lot of things that you wouldn't agree with. So, I mean, I, I'm just going I'm, – I'm not going to, to go that uh, a route necessarily. I suppose I, I'm probably more uh, – I, I feel closer to Aristotle than anybody else. But I think that my general view is that human nature is a bundle of uh, aspirations and fears and hatreds and, uh, and, and a lot of things uh, that go into 
what makes humans uh, what they are, and that we have, uh, I think, rather optimistically put all the emphasis on the kinds of things that Frank Fukuyama identified in the end of history, you know, the desire for recognition and ultimately for some kind of freedom, uh, individual uh, uh, rights, and that while those things certainly exist and can be encouraged, uh, there are other things in human nature that that don't seek those things, that seek security and family and tribe, that seek uh, sometimes to be led by a strong uh, leader and our people are willing even to sacrifice their own rights to allow that leader to do what they think needs to be done. Uh, you know, so there's some, there's a lot of competing impulses in human nature that don't necessarily lead in one direction or another. Um, and history certainly suggests that they don't naturally lead toward democracy. At least it seems that way to me. Okay. And so in, in terms of your view of history, which I think is encapsulated in your title, um, the jungle grows back. There's a pre-existing jungle. And as uh, one of the, I think the most salient and um, poignant points you make is that this period of the American century, if whenever that starts, post-World War II, perhaps, it really is unusual. It is not the natural state of affairs. Right. Certainly, from a from a you know historical point of view, uh, this this we've we've enjoyed certain a- elements of uh, of life in this period, really beginning in 1945, uh, that are unusual: the widespread of democracy, the incredible period of prosperity, and the relative great power peace, which is you know not we haven't set we have set a record, but it's not a very impressive record to set for not having a great a great power conflict. So. Um, And I do think we've seen enormous human progress, including moral progress during this period. But I think it is uh, a reaction to circumstances rather than a natural evolution of humanity. And I think that's where I probably part company uh, with Frank's earlier article and with people like Steven Pinker today. I just I think we are living in an aberrant period historically, not in the sort of the new plateau of human existence. Okay. And so um, the metaphor you use to continue that, the the U.S. is really carved out uh, of this pre-existing jungle. It's carved out a kind of and curated a garden. Um, and that garden takes constant care, right? So um, have we started to let the jungle grow back at this point? Yes, and I think it, in fair, it's, yes, and I think there have been other times when the jungle has encroached as well. Even during the Cold War, even during the period when you know we, uh, even I, sort of celebrate the success. I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, suggest that there was never a moment when the jungle wasn't creeping back then as well. Um, you know, the the metaphor of the jungle really talks about the fact that there are natural forces at work uh, undermining any kind of order. I think in the international system. Uh, the natural tendency is toward chaos and conflict. And you can establish orders that prevent that. And nations have in the past, the Roman order or uh, the Egyptian order or the European order. Uh, it doesn't even necessarily mean the order is a good thing inherently, but it does, it does put a break on the natural tendency toward chaos and conflict. And then as I was, you know, as we were discussing um, in terms of human nature, I mean, history, history would certainly suggest that tyranny is the more natural form of government. Um, and so if, if we have had a long period of democracy and liberalism, uh, we should, I think there's reason to think that there are forces that naturally work against that. So when we see rising nationalism and authoritarianism 
in Europe and elsewhere. If we see rising geopolitical competition, you know, with, with Russia and China and others, uh, we shouldn't uh, think that any of that's unusual. It is, in fact, normal. The only question is, do we push it back or do we sort of let it happen? And I guess I would say we've increasingly been letting it happen rather than pushing back. And so in terms of looking back at some of the instances when the jungle was encroaching, um, and, it, and, and based on your description, it sounds like it's, it's constantly encroaching. In other words, if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to bite you, right? Right. It's, it, it naturally encroaches and because we have created this artificial situation. So in order to keep an artificial situation going, you have to keep, keep working at it. And so based on the U.S. experience in the 20th century, what are some of the key whether you can call them policy tools or dispositions, what are some of the key efforts that the U.S. made or that we experienced uh, that indicate that you can really successfully keep the jungle at bay? Well, I think the most important element of keeping the jungle at bay after World War II was, uh, and which was had remained in place and remains in place today, was simply taking uh, Germany and Japan and Europe and Asia from the, the trajectory they had been on, which was one of constant conflict and instability, uh, and turning those regions into fundamentally stable and fundamentally democratic regions. So you took a Germany that ever since its unification uh, really was uh, a destabilizing force in Europe as well as being a fundamentally autocratic uh, in nature. Uh, and and, conf- and and converted Germany into a Pacific democracy that also uh, became an economic powerhouse and fueled uh, an economic boom not only in its own in Germany but in Europe as a whole and also became an anchor of stability and democracy in Europe. Um, that's a huge transformation. Um, and similarly in Asia, uh, where Japan pursued a very similar course as Germany uh, after the uh, Meiji Restoration and it, it's uh, uh, leaving its self-imposed isolation, um, you know, to, to convert those two major powers from what they had been to what they are now today and then sustaining that is really, uh, you know, an incredible shift in the direction of history. So that those are the key things. But then, you know, then there's been all the efforts that have been maintained, um, um, uh, you know, since then to try to sustain the major elements of that, of this order that they are the pillars of. And so that really takes, though, a, a substantial investment of time, money, personnel, um, and... I would imagine that the average American in 1945 at the end of the war would have found it hard to believe that Germany and Japan would have been our most Pacific and strongest allies in the world among them uh, by, you know, even 20, 30 years later, uh, it would be surprising, but there's, they've sustained that relationship and that disposition. So their culture, arguably, has really been dramatically changed by the U.S. role. In other words, it's not just the absence of conflict, but rather you're suggesting the culture was really changed by the American involvement and presence. Yes, definitely. I mean, there, no one would have assumed uh, in 1945 that Germany was going to be a democracy. Uh, I don't, and I think that if the United States had not, and the other allies had not 
remained an occupying forces and uh, and helped steer Germany in that direction. It doesn't mean Germans didn't take uh, substantial responsibility for that, and important Germans did, but I don't think there's any reason to assume that Germany would have gone in that direction. So that was a transformation of culture, which we're seeing, you know, which you can now see the, the, the fruit of today, and then similarly uh, in Japan. And, and this is one of the things that I think is inadequately understood or thought about even by you know, people who do this for a living, think about these things for a living, is just the degree to which certain power arrangements and the preferences of powers uh, do change cultures. It isn't simply the idea that wins. The idea has to be supported by power and, the you know, the influence of great powers on the behavior of peoples in around the world is very significant. And I think that's something else that's backed up by, you know, historical experience. In light of Japan and Germany's experience, in order to maintain and preserve those beneficent, peaceful cultures, does the U.S. need to maintain from here on out, from 2018 onward, the same degree of presence that we have heretofore? Well, we have to maintain some presence. And of course, you know, people, uh, it's, it, to me, it's interesting that Americans think that they have an, uh, an, uh, you know, an extensive presence around the world, which we do, of course. But in the 1950s, we had a million troops deployed uh, overseas out of a population of roughly 160 million Americans. And today, we have under 200,000 deployed out of a population of over 300 million Americans. So I don't think that his, in historical terms, we are you know, particularly overextended. But the answer is yes. Um, the critical component of, of this peaceful liberal order that I think Americans benefit from more than anybody is the, the staying power of the United States, particularly in Europe and Asia, but I think even more generally, since all regions of the world are connected, and we would like to believe that we could focus on one at the exclusion of others, but the world is, a, is an integrated place. So um, I personally would say, and I try to make this argument, that whatever cost we're bearing to maintain this order, the cost of losing it would be very, very much greater. And so you can't look at these costs. In a way, Americans are funny because I think they think foreign policy is, in a certain sense, they think foreign policy is optional. And so since we spend money on foreign policy, we have the option of not doing that. But really, the option is between spending this amount of money or spending a lot more money when everything breaks down. Right. And I... In asking that question, I wasn't so much suggesting that we're overextended or that, or much less, that it was optional. Rather, I was thinking about not just the threats that we protect Germany and Japan from today, i.e. Russia and China, but also, and North Korea, but also the character of those countries themselves. You know, one of the classic realist concerns is you don't pay attention so much to what countries say they want to do, but rather their capabilities. And so... Germany and Japan are very strong countries economically, and certainly if they chose to do so, they could allocate those resources to a defense buildup, uh, nuclear arms buildup, etc. Does our presence, in other words, our continued presence, not only help ensure against expansionist actions by Russia and China and North Korea, but also ensure in maintaining the character of those countries like Japan and Germany? Yes. And I mean, um, thank you for making that point, because that's a point I, I make in the book as well. And, and I think that's the part of it that people really don't consider is what would happen in Germany and Japan if we stop playing this role. And I, I think in Japan, 
you can already see um, a kind of rising nationalism, which I think might exist in any case, but is uh, is strengthened by the perception that the United States may not continue playing the role that it had been playing, at which point uh, Japan, you know, whether with all the best intentions in the world, still needs to protect itself from China, which leads to greater militarization, which I think has an effect on society. And I think a Germany that is unmoored from a liberal, integrated, uh, transatlantic community has to make different choices about itself. And I I must say, I find it almost uh, insane that we are continually encouraging Japan and Germany to rearm. Um, I just think that one of the great accomplishments uh, of, uh, of this present order is precisely the fact that Germany and Japan do not want to rearm. So I think we need to be very careful about that. So um, in regard to um, uh, preparing and convincing, persuading the American public, uh, and in turn, of course, their elected officials, that this type of presence is necessary, not just for American interests, but for global interests. Um, what do you see as some of the dark clouds on the horizon? You've obviously, re- you've referred to Trump in particular. What about the broader um, re- foreign policy establishment within uh, Washington, D.C., as well as the Republican and Democratic parties? Well, I, you know, I, I think I go to some pains to say in the book uh, that, you know, this is not a, a, a Trump phenomenon. This desire to uh, pull back from these uh, burdensome responsibilities in the world uh, goes back before Trump. It certainly is uh, a, a partly a product of the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and the 2008 financial crisis, but it actually goes back uh, even beyond that, I think that uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, Americans began asking uh, why it was necessary for the United States to play this role. And so this has been building for some time. Uh, and I think it's reflected uh, in the what had been sort of dramatic lack of support for doing anything about, for instance, the crisis in Syria. It's interesting that in the 1990s, we had, uh, you know, relative support, although it was shaky, for uh, intervening in the Balkans uh, in the case of Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, uh, there was opposition, but but uh, ultimately it was something that was supported. Whereas the prospect of dealing with a far greater crisis in Syria, which has cost, uh, which has had the effect of destabilizing uh, Europe politically. Uh, there really had been no support for that. Now, I don't know whether that may be changing. I know that people, many more people than I might have expected to look back on Syria and the Obama administration's policies in Syria uh, and think we probably should have done more. I don't really know whether there still would be any more support today than there was then. But it is instances like that uh, which had reverberations around the world. I don't want to make too much of Syria, but the, the Japanese noticed that the United States didn't act in Syria. Other nations noticed. And so uh, the perception of the United States as wanting to get out of this business has grown very strong around the world, which leads other countries to try to begin to make adjustments to that new reality. So you've articulated the uh, what we should be doing in terms of uh, American history in the 20th century and uh, uh, the context of international relations, as you understand it. One 
area of governance that you don't go into deeply at all in the book is really domestic concerns. Um, but it would seem to me, and I'm, I'm sure you agree on this, and I just want you to elaborate your thoughts on this. Um, domestic health is really important, uh, and it's what's going to enable us to do some of the things that you want the U.S. to do internationally. So um, in, in light of that, uh, do you think that there should be a much more express articulation on the part of, say, elected officials or at least the president uh, to connect our international uh, capacities and the good things that can come from it with things like the domestic economy, the state of the welfare uh, supports, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we've uh, most politicians uh, in the post Cold War period have re- have treated foreign policy and defense policy and maintaining this international order as uh, somehow detracting from our ability to deal with our domestic problems. So, you know, in the famous phrase of uh, President Obama, you know, we we need to be nation building at home, not nation building abroad, as if as if there is a kind of, you know, zero-sum trade-off to be made between those two. I think if you look at the history of the Cold War, as just as an example, the United States actually was able to be very active overseas and uh, dealing with a lot of uh, social crises and problems at home. I think, And I think there's maybe even a correlation that work that goes in that direction. I think that there was uh, almost certainly a correlation between fighting the Cold War and the civil rights uh, progress that was made in the United States because America was professing to be the leader of the free world abroad while obviously not fulfilling its own promise uh, at home. And I think that that aided uh, the civil rights movement. And I also think that some of the, you know, if you look at some of the uh, government programs that Eisenhower and Johnson and Nixon uh, put together, those occurred in the context of vigorous prosecution of the Cold War. So um, I do think that that's important. Now, of course, the problems that America is suffering from today, I think, are not primarily economic. I think they have to do with much deeper forces in American history that we're all familiar with, having to do with racial tensions and um, uh, xenophobia and all kinds of uh, deeply rooted American uh, difficulties that, you know, periodically crop up. Um, I think, you know, to me, the 2016 election is almost a re- replay of the 1920 election uh, in terms of the social forces that were at work. So, um, and how to address those problems is a much deeper issue. And that, you know, includes, you know, and now we're grappling with the new technological uh, problems that are that are appearing on social media, et cetera, that sort of amplify these divisions. Um, I don't know which politician is going to get up and save us from that. I think that's something we're going to have to work out, uh, work our way through. And I think there's no question that these sort of deep American divisions uh, hamper our ability or our willingness to play the role that I would like to see us play on the world stage. Well, I would agree with you that certainly if we look back to the 1950s and 60s, we were able to, in some senses, have our cake and eat it too, both uh, achieving results internationally, but also making reforms that were needed, uh, moral moral reforms that were needed, political uh, achievements. But at the same time, what... What about your opinion regarding, say, uh, the strains on uh, taxes and uh, debt in terms of maintaining the welfare state, or I should say the entitlement state, 
<clears throat> while at the same time um, being concerned with how much we are allocating to say, to uh, extending our power and maintaining it overseas. Do you see any potential connection there with weakening of our ability to do it if we maintain our current trajectory in terms of entitlements? Well, un- undoubtedly. But I mean, you know, I wish it were, I mean, it used to be we were concerned about not dealing with our entitlement crisis. But now, you know, we're blowing up the budget deficit on things that have nothing to do with entitlements, like, for instance, tax cuts and uh, other new kinds of spending that we've created. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, people spend a lot of time talking about how our interventions overseas uh, are are affecting our budget deficits. But if you look at the line on budget deficits uh, and the national debt, they, they've gone up uh, so much more since the end of the Iraq war than they were during the Iraq war. And, uh, and now that we, uh, you know, with these most recent round of tax cuts, uh, we are we are blowing up our deficit even more. And, and people are and in fact, President Trump is now talking about more tax cuts. So, uh, you know, this focus on how our foreign policy is bankrupting us strikes me as ludicrous. If we are, uh, you know, if we were that concerned about such things, we wouldn't be pursuing uh, completely independently domestic economic and fiscal policies that were clearly having a much greater effect. So, you know, a lot of people want to say it's guns versus butter, but I really think that that is is mostly a straw man. Um, and I do think it gets down to this idea that what we do overseas is optional. Uh, and therefore, every dollar that we spend on it needs to be sort of counted against uh, a dollar that could be better spent somewhere else. Okay, I think I was agreeing with you and, and perhaps making the point in our... I'm not arguing with you. I'm just making... I'm yeah. arguing with a, but I'm arguing with a lot of people out there. Well, well I, guess I, I guess I do like the analogy, that, that cliche, the guns versus butter. It just seems to me that the butter is pretty darn expensive right now. And the, and the more expensive it becomes, all of a sudden, really, that does inhibit your ability to do what you want to with the guns. Well, only, only. I mean, I, I guess I, I don't think we're arguing at all. But I, I guess the only thing that I would disagree with is that um, that is theoretically true, but that is in a way a decision. Um, it's not actually the case that the marginal increases in in let's say defense spending, just to pick the most unpopular form, uh, are in any way uh, fundamentally related to our decision making on all those other issues. You know, I mean. We, if we increase our defense budget even by a hundred billion dollars, I hate to tell people, but a hundred billion dollars these days is a drop in the bucket compared to our overall economy and on our overall federal government spending. And right. so, and I, so therefore, I think there's this tendency, and again, I think it gets back to our attitude toward foreign policy to overemphasize and overestimate the significance of our defense and foreign aid and national security budget in general as part of our overall uh, economy and our economic decision making. Uh, so, you know, we we I'm sh- we spend incredible hundreds of billions of dollars on farm subsidies, which, you know, may or may not be the right thing to do. But somehow they don't be, they don't become part of the conversation in the same way that extra spending on the military does. So if if you're somewhat pessimistic about um, the ability and the likelihood of success for politicians to help persuade the populace to support the American role in the world is the only thing that's left events themselves that will do it. In other words, things may need to get worse before they get better. 
Well, I don't like to, you know, go there uh, because uh, I'm not, I don't want anything terrible to happen, which might prompt American action. And I don't also, I, I wish I could be more optimistic that even a series of bad events would necessarily change our trajectory. Because if you do go back and look at the 1930s, it's sort of interesting, although it's also in a way sort of logical uh, that the worse things got, the less Americans wanted to get involved in the world because, of course, the worse things get, the, the bigger the cost of addressing them. So even when Nazi Germany was uh, overrunning France, which you would think ought to be the moment at which everyone says, okay, we've got to get involved, that was not the American public response. And it really did take uh, Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor to push Americans over. So I don't want to wait for those kinds of catastrophes uh, for Americans to turn around. The one thing we have going for us, um, which is different from the 1930s, is Americans in the 1930s, America had to step into a role that it had never taken before. So that's a little harder than resuming a role that the United States has already been in. Um, so I would like to hope that at some point, maybe not in this election cycle or the next or even the next election cycle, um, there can be, on the one hand, a return to sort of greater civility and addressing a lot of the problems that we have in our politics at home, uh, accompanied by a greater sense uh, of responsibility abroad. I don't rule out that possibility, even absent uh, some stunning crisis. But you know, the trajectory is not a positive one, and it will it, it will take uh, some doing to turn it in the other direction. And it also seems to me that critics of your viewpoint are going to say, okay, if you want to look at history, let's look at some other things like Vietnam, um, American involvement in the Middle East, uh, especially of late, uh, that these, although perhaps well-intentioned, if they're being charitable, they'll say well-intentioned, but ultimately not yielding what we wanted it to yield. Now, of course, the verdict may still be out. Uh, the jury may still be out on some of these uh, projects in the Middle East uh, or uh, South Asia. But uh, what what's your response to that in regard to this? Well, my response is, uh, you know, and this is something I, I try to make another point about in the book. I think, unfortunately, we are uh, prone to error and misjudgment. And so in our effort to sustain this liberal world order, we are going to make these kinds of mistakes and misjudgments. I, I a lot of people out there uh, recommending a certain approach to foreign policy, and I say this particularly of the critics uh, of current American policy, the people who call themselves realists. The, the wonderful thing about their policies is they never admit that anything could possibly go wrong with their policies. They're very good on pointing out the things that go wrong with other people's policies. I, I'm, I'm going to frankly admit that our, the, the approach that I recommend, which will require uh, the wielding of American power, is going to produce its share of mistakes. And for me, the real question is, not are we going to make mistakes, but how are we going to recover from those mistakes and learn from those mistakes? Uh, some people learn from those mistakes by saying, well, we should never intervene again. But I think that's just uh, completely unrealistic. So I would rather we learn uh, how to intervene more intelligently, more effectively when, when intervention becomes necessary. And I, I think that even if you look at Vietnam, which is a far greater uh, sort of cost to us than Iraq has been, but even if you look at Vietnam, um, the overall approach that we took 
in the Cold War, which was the strategy of containment, on the one hand, also led us into Vietnam, uh, but on the other hand, also succeeded uh, almost miraculously in bringing a peaceful end to the Cold War. Uh, and so, you know, if we demand only successes and no failures, um, I think, unfortunately, that's unrealistic. So we're recording this on October 22nd, 2018. And uh, this past weekend, there was an essay in the uh, Wall Street Journal by Richard Haas in regard to uh, the U.S. approach to China. And um, he essentially makes this distinction between managing potential sites of conflict that might conflate into a larger conflict uh, versus the, the concept of containment. Um, I don't know if you saw that essay, but... Uh, he suggests that containment, uh, a la the Cold War, uh, is not really the the best approach to China. And so, since China seems to be uh, one of our key uh, adversaries at this point, what what do you think of this concept of containment? Uh, even if it's not in relation to Haas's essay, but this idea that we should utilize the experience we had during the Cold War with Russia, with Soviet Union, uh, in modeling our behavior towards China as well as other potential adversaries. I mean, I've been I've been hearing about how we shouldn't pursue a policy toward containment now from you know for for thirty years, and uh, you know, he, first of all, we we are pursuing a policy of containment toward China, and the Chinese know we are. Um, now, it's geopolitical and military containment; it is not economic containment, and I think that's an important distinction. But the fact is that we have, in relation to China, um, a belt of powerful allies uh, from Korea to Japan to Australia. Uh, India is not a formal ally, but they are effectively a strategic partner uh, who all have the common aim of containing Chinese ambition, geopolitical uh, and whatever military ambition they have in the region. And that uh, that is a policy of containment. I don't know why we can't call it that. The Chinese are under no illusion about it. Um, The second question, though, has to do with how do we deal with the Chinese economy? And we didn't so much impose an economic containment on the Soviet Union as they imposed it on themselves. Uh, You know, I think that if the Soviet Union had been willing to open up its economy, uh, then uh, the rest of the world would have been happy to to join in and make whatever money there was to be made, because that's how capitalism works. So um, the real difficult question is, what should our approach be towards the Chinese economy? And my view on that is that I don't know whether we are capable of containing the Chinese economy, but I don't think in any case it's probably the wisest thing to do. Our strategy toward China, it seems to me, ought to be at least similar to the bargain that we struck with Germany and Japan after World War II and that we offered to Russia uh, after the end of the Cold War, which is Go thou and prosper, uh, make money, uh, wield economic influence in the world, uh, raise the standard of living of your people. Uh, we are all for that. What we cannot abide is your use of military power uh, to pursue your geopolitical goals. That was That's the bargain that many other nations have taken, including France and Britain for that matter. Now, I'm pessimistic that the Chinese will ever accept that bargain because I think they're too deeply rooted in their sense of self, uh, uh, which includes a certain kind of geopolitical role in Asia. But that should certainly be the sort of mix of containment, but also steering them in the direction of economic success. 
that I think ought to be our policy. These days, I think we're kind of have the opposite policy. We are trying to punish them economically while at the same time, uh, our ability to deter them militarily is declining. So looking forward uh, from here on out, uh, if you could wave a magic wand and produce a foreign policy outlook that you think is most beneficial, not just to the U.S., but to global security, what would be, say, the top three changes or policy positions that you would reinforce uh, going here uh, from here on out? Well, you know, sort of working from the core out, um, I would say uh, the first thing we have to do is ensure that uh, the United States and its allies in Asia are sufficiently strong and technologically capable militarily uh, to deter China from using force uh, to accomplish its goals, whether that those goals are in the South China Sea or Taiwan or elsewhere. I think that the minute China uses force uh, and particularly successfully uses force, we're going to begin to see the rapid unraveling of the international order with, with all the consequences. So that's the number one. That's the first thing. The other is I think the United States needs to take a much more active role, not in dealing with Europe, uh, you know, bilaterally, but actually dealing, you know, getting involved in internal European discussions. I think we should have been much more involved um, in dealing with the uh, the Brexit uh, negotiations. I think we should have done more to try to prevent Brexit from, Brexit from occurring. But once it had occurred, I think we should have been heavily involved because we have a real interest in how closely the United Kingdom works with uh, our European allies. And so uh, I also think we need to be more involved in Europe in pushing back against the authoritarian tendencies that we see in Hungary and Poland and elsewhere. So because the two... The, the two cores of what make this order possible are a peaceful, prosperous Europe and a peaceful, prosperous Asia. Those should be our top priorities. But because, and then because the core is connected to things that we don't consider the core, particularly in the Middle East, I think unfortunately uh, we have no choice but to try to uh, push for a better trajectory in the Middle East than we have seen so far. I don't like relying on the local players, whether they are Saudi Arabia or Egypt or Israel, to be determining the course uh, of that region. I don't think any of them share our fundamental goals for that region. And so therefore, we're going to have to be more involved, uh, preventing such kind of, uh, uh, at least containing such kinds of crises that we see in Syria, but also steering the, the, the region in a direction that is more in the direction of political reform uh, and economic reform. And we really just haven't been doing that. Uh, so those are three things that I think are, are the most important right now. Uh, and in general, I would say, you know, overarching uh, over, you know, sort of stretching over all of those is the United States needs to reassure the world that it's not departing the scene. And I think we've been sending the signal that we are departing the scene for quite some time. It would be very beneficial uh, for the stability of the world if people could see that the United States was going to continue playing the role that it's played for over 70 years. Do you think that the um, current trends, not just Trump individually, but in terms of uh, the Republican Party are leaning towards a return to, say, a Robert Taft type of foreign policy outlook? Well, certainly Trump articulates 
a Robert Taft approach. And Robert Taft was a very smart man and he articulated it very well. Um, and if you go back and read his speeches, you know, he makes a lot of the points that Trump is now making and not just Trump. Now, I don't think, I don't know what the heart and soul of the Republican Party is these days. So I don't know whether if you had a different leader uh, of the Republican Party, whether the Republicans would go back more in the direction that they were in, which is sort of the Reagan-Bush approach to the world. Um, I don't know whether that's irretrievably lost or whether it can be recaptured. I'm actually, in a certain sense, more concerned about the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, which seems to me to be moving ever more left or progressive or whatever you want to call it, which uh, in foreign policy terms, it seems to me means an extensively diminished American role in the world. I don't think that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump disagree very much in a certain fundamental way about what kind of role the United States should be playing in the world. So uh, that is more concerning to me, you know, insofar as Hillary Clinton represented the traditional democratic view, I think her defeat was uh, due to many causes, but I think at least part of it was the unattractiveness of that view within the democratic party. And so the return of centrism uh, to the Democratic Party, something and perhaps the Republican Party, too, is uh, something you're fairly pessimistic about at this point. I'm, I'm certainly, you know, politics, as, as you know, predicting what's going to happen four years from now even is, is a lot. But certainly the trends in both parties are away from you know, what what people refer to as the foreign policy establishment. I work in Washington. Uh, I have no trouble finding uh, an extensive number of Democrats and Republicans who've been doing foreign policy for years and years and years. And we fundamentally agree. Uh, you know, we may disagree on this policy or that policy, but on the broad trajectory, we agree. But I don't think either of us is dominant within our own, you know, within our own respective spheres. Uh, and so, you know, what, 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 uh, what Ben Rhodes called the blob is in disfavor in both parties. Um, and that's just a, that's just a reality for the moment. I don't know whether that might change in four years or six years or eight years, but I don't see it. I don't see the change on the horizon, put it that way. You know, in the 1970s, we turned around and elected Ronald, you know, nominated and elected Ronald Reagan, uh, for the 1980. Uh, presidential election. Can can anyone imagine such a figure being getting the nomination in either party now? I, I really, in terms of his view of uh, of America's role in the world, I find that almost inconceivable. So um, it, it may happen, but I don't see it yet. Well, on that optimistic note, we will end. <laughs> uh, the book is The Jungle Grows Back. And our uh, guest today has been Robert Kagan. Robert, thank you for joining me on New Books Network. Well, thank you very much, Ian. <laughs>